Good morning, and um, it's great to be with you for the last of this Disciple Series. What we've done, is, if you haven't been around, is we've been going through the book of Philippians in eight weeks. And if you have a Bible and can turn to the letter to the Philippians, that'd be great. We've been going through it, really asking the question, how are disciples made? If we want to be a, a follower of Jesus, a learner from Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, how does that happen? What kinds of things go on to shape us to be more like him? And we've gone through the letter a bit at a time and said it's about partnership and hardship and lordship and friendship and worship and citizenship and leadership last week. And this week, as you can see, we're going to be looking at stewardship. And those are the ways we've done it. We've gone through this letter to uh, draw those out. But many of you will know from other church backgrounds you've been in, perhaps, that there are a whole load of different ways in which Christians have said for the last 2,000 years that disciples are made. And we're not touching on all of those ways. And I just wanted to comment on that for a moment. You probably see as you sort of from the kind of background you're from that there would be some where a lot of emphasis would be placed on things what we call spiritual disciplines or spiritual habits. So you may come from a tradition where those things have been very emphasized and mind us, right? This is a big part of my Christian life. Would be you'd often talk about spiritual habits, things which you as an individual do in your personal life with God. Things like praying and fasting and meditating on scripture and worship, that sort of thing. And so that would be very very influential for many of us. We go and say, that's part of how disciples are made. That's probably the biggest part for many of us. And what's good about it is it profiles personal devotion. What it misses out on is the church, the fact that actually we disciples are made in and through the church as well. And that, so because, as a result of that, 500 years ago, if you like, there would be a, in the Protestant Reformation, there was a strong emphasis on the way that the ordinary means of grace is what they would call it. The idea that there are ordinary things we do by which we if you like, experience and enjoy the grace of God, and these would be quite corporate things. So the next page would be things that happen in and through the church. So you see, if you can't read, telling someone read your Bible doesn't really help. So you go, no, of course you come and you're part of a church where you are hearing the word of God read and preached, you're saying it, you're singing it, you're praying it, and you're sharing in the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and you're praying. And so that would be a big part of Christian formation, and still is, in many kinds of churches, and again, in this church. This is, this is why we do worship the way we do, because we want to help not just sing, if you like, but also learn and grow in our character and likeness to Christ. And then another way of thinking about it, 200 years after that, the Wesleyans, John Wesley and the Methodists, uh, they sort of talked about it in yet another way, which is they said, well, we think that it's right to emphasize what you'd call, what they called piety, that is spiritual habits and the church, that's on the left, but also to think about the ways in which this works itself out in action, works of mercy, which might be feeding the poor or opposing slavery in their context and things like that, where they'd say this has actually got to be expressed in the things you do and not just if, and corporately in the public square. And that, again, reflects the context of England at the time and so on. So there'd be, I think, in some ways, all of those are helpful. But the problem with listing them all is it sounds like there's about 31 different things you have to do if you want to grow as a Christian. Or worse, 31 steps to heaven. Things that you, and in all these different habits, you go, oh, I'm going to always doing stuff to try and get where I want to get to. And so I just thought it would be helpful to say that even when we talk about spiritual habits or practical steps or means of grace, we are talking about things that we do in order to greaten our enjoyment, let, uh, greaten, that's not a word, um, increase our enjoyment of and celebration of and sharing in the grace of God, not in order to work our way to try and earn merits with God or anything like that. And this might help you with this, like, my son, Sam, is, uh, is nearly two now. 
So two years ago, my wife and I came to visit with a view to me taking this job, and she was up here on the stage, very pregnant. She's now, uh, that, now that, that bump is now nearly two, and he's running around, and he's realized that although he's too small to reach the biscuits that are on the kitchen surfaces, he can get the biscuits if he makes use of a chair. And so he's found that if you drag a chair and put it next to the surface and then he climbs up on it like this, he can get what he wants. He's not particularly interested in the chair, but as a means of getting somewhere he wants to go, it's very, very helpful. And so that's what he does. And you often kind of catch him and, you know, all that stuff. Now, the, the spiritual habits we're talking about, all of this stuff, really, these are the chair. That's not the goal. The, the biscuit is, as Paul says in Philippians, that I may know Christ. That's what I want. I want to know Jesus. I want to be like him. I want to grow into his likeness. But I've found that there are a whole bunch of things that when I do them, make me more open to the grace of God, help me grow and become like him. And so when I'm praying, I'm not praying because prayer is itself the end goal. I'm not reading the Bible to get merit points with God or anything like that. I'm reading the Bible because I found that when I do, my heart is open to more of the grace of God and I get closer to the biscuit of knowing Jesus Christ. And I've found that that really helps me because it then doesn't make me think, I've got to tick this thing off the list. It's a way of catching me up in the likeness of Jesus and the wonder of God. And I hope that might help you. And sometimes I see my son doing it. And I think of this point and think, yeah, that's how I'm using spiritual habits, if you like. And it's also worth saying that even though it looks like there's a whole bunch of different things that I've just put up on the screen, they really boil down in the end to four things. I would say four habits that effectively Christians all around the world for a long time have said these are really the things that, that you, we do, and as we do, we grow. Reading the Bible, reading Scripture, if you can't read, then it's having it read to you and being part of a community where it's read and explained. Praying, and fasting goes along with that uh, in, in many contexts. Participating in a church where you will hear the gospel preached and share in the sacraments and pray, and using your gifts your time, your money, your energy, your abilities, your power, your privilege to serve other people. And those four things, actually, I've found in the year and a half I've been in this church, I've either preached on or heard preached to me on all four of those things more than once. So I know that this is like an emphasis here. This is part of the way we do things and think about spiritual growth. But it's just good to put them out there and say, this isn't complicated. Those four things, even though there's a lot of different ways that might express itself, those four things are really the heart of how people grow and pretty much always have. And it's the last of those that we're going to look at this morning, really, stewardship. Using that which God has given you, which isn't just money, although Paul is here talking about money, and that's important, it's not the only thing here, but using whatever God has given you to serve others and glorify God. And you'll find that this passage actually sums up not just that theme, but the whole series really, really beautifully. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. See, that's about expressing life in the church, isn't it? It's about being in a church together and working it through. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
See, that's about prayer. So you have being in the church, you have prayer. And you have effectively reflecting on Scripture. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of God. Discipleship is about stewardship. It's about looking after the gifts that we've been given to us on trust, time, money, abilities, power, spiritual gifts, and using them for the service of others and the glory of God. Now, that's not all it's about, as we've seen. In fact, you saw the references to the church, prayer, and scripture even in the text. And actually, the whole series really comes to a head in these verses. You may have noticed that we went through, Paul has, in this, just these few verses, talked about leadership, about imitating him as a leader. He's talked about hardship. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be in hunger, as well as, you know, he's talking about hardship. He's talked about partnership and used the word. You're the only church who did that with me, but thank you for doing it. He's talked about worship, about the offering of fragrant gifts to God that are acceptable to him. He's talked about lordship, the glory of God. He's talked about friendship, greet every saint. So he's, in a way, rehashing the whole letter and all of these different elements of discipleship that we've seen in this series. But mainly, this passage is about stewardship. It's about saying thank you to the Philippians because in their, we know from elsewhere in Paul's writings, they, did not, they were poor. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, they were extreme poverty. And he said, even in that, they have used their resources to bless him and encourage him. And he's writing this to say thank you. They used their little to serve him. And as a result of that, there is a section in the most famous and widely read book in history devoted to saying thank you to this group of people whose names we don't even know. And I find that really encouraging because I think, wow, that shows me stewardship. It's not just about those of us who have lots. It's about those of us who have very, very little but use it well. Use it generously, use it kindly, look after it well, and treat the trust that God's given us wisely. And it shows me that if that, in that case, you see, some of us are stewards, even of things in which we have very, very little, to the point we don't think we have very much at all. Now, by God's grace, I've been given a lot of some things, as we all have. 
but I've been given very little of some other things. And I want to give an example of how you can steward something of which you have very little and still see fruit. Okay? One of the things, and I think some might say the biggest thing, of which I have received very little is coolness. Okay? This is something of which I have not been blessed. Many of you have, I haven't. And I want to explain how, I guess there was a year of my life in which I am painfully aware how little coolness I had and how even that I kind of tried to throw. Basically, I was working for children, uh, working with children um, from council estates in the area around where I lived in Eastbourne. I came and did a gap year. I just finished doing a theology and history degree at Cambridge. And I rock up with no coolness to speak of on some of these estates to try and build connections. Actually, a really good friend of mine is here this morning who was working with me at the time. She could walk into any estate and the kids would be like, wow. And the kids, I'd walk into any estate and the kids would be like, really? You? And it was that, I'm that kind of person. I still am, actually. I had a pair of trousers, um, that notorious now, the chef's trousers. Basically, the black and white, it looked a little bit like a little chessboard. You know, black and white checks the whole way up and down on every side. Not a good look. I had another pair of trousers that used to be red that had faded to a sort of salmon pink. Um, I had another, I mean, a mustard-colored coat. There are people in this room who will verify all of these facts. And, uh, and I was not cool, right? I didn't have very much to speak of. The very first time I ever met my wife, and you can, she'll, you, she'll tell you this, right? We was in a kids' club planning meeting just before I was about to start my gap year, and I came in and I just pitched, shared my ideas, which I'm sure were not good, and as, after I'd left the meeting, she said, the first thing she ever said of me to any other human, and I quote, they are going to eat him alive. That's what she said. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that'll give you a flavor. I do not have much, Okay. But what I thought, I, I'm just going to throw myself into this. I'm going to do it anyway. And all right, we'll just see, if it, see what happens. And so I used what I had, which at the time was just basically a, some time and my energy. And I went and I just did the thing where we knock on the doors and build relationships and so on. And I remember the first time I knocked on this one door, this, um, in fact, it was one of the first one houses I visited. Um, this big guy opens the door. And he, not that this is especially important, but it was intimidating for me as a 20, 21-year-old. Um, he's wearing nothing from the waist up. And he's quite a big guy, thick glasses, opens the door, he's like, hello, kind of big man. And I'm just like, am I in the middle of something? You know, it's kind of a strange moment when you sort of think, I don't know, what am I interrupting here? And so I'm like, hi, hi, we're here from Kids Club, and we, you know, here's the coloring sheet and that sort of thing. And it just sort of felt to me like a kind of bumpy start. Anyway, over the course of that year, uh, his daughter, who was already coming to Kids Club, um, she becomes a believer towards the end of the year, age 12, and her brothers and sisters are all coming to Kids Club as well. And then the mum starts coming, and then the dad starts coming, and eventually the whole family start coming to the church, get converted. I st- to this day, if you go to Eastbourne on a normal Sunday, their family will be in that church. He's the guy who taught me to drive. She is subsequent, and they're just church members now for 15 years. She's subsequently, she's now like 26, 27. She's got married. She's got two or three kids. She's married to a guy who's on the pastor's training course that I run. And I'm thinking, man, I didn't have very much here, but God has used this little thing that I had and produced a lot of fruit. In fact, he's produced more fruit out of something where I had nothing than he has out of some things where I feel like I've got a lot more. Because that's the kind of God he is, that he he uses little things to grow big things. And the Philippians had given a little bit of money. They didn't have much, but they'd been really generous with it, like the widow's might in that sense. And God had caused something massive to happen that had really encouraged Paul. And in the end, it actually changed the history of the world because it's got brought into this book. And I find that so encouraging because then when I hear or think about a message on stewardship, I'm not thinking primarily about stuff. What have I got lots of and how can I use it? I'm also thinking, what have I got little of and how can I use it in order to serve others and glorify God? So I just want to walk through the passage and just show you four quick things that come out of it that show us the characteristics of 
good stewardship? What are good stewards like? When you meet someone who has used their resources really well to be generous to other people, to serve other people, to use their gifts, their time, their power, whatever it may be, what are the characteristics of those people? How, can, how do they do it? And the first one is that good stewards are fundamentally concerned people. They're concerned, right? This is in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And then he says something very similar in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share, literally to have fellowship in my trouble. So Paul is saying, really, you guys are concerned people. You heard what was happening to me, and it brought you concern. And that's, a really, that's an attribute of a good steward. And the reason is, of course, that if you're not concerned, you will always find a reason to use your resources for you and not for someone else. Right? If I'm not concerned by what's happening to anyone else around me, I'm not, it doesn't matter, it's not just money, it's time, it's anything, I'm not going to use it for them because I'm not really concerned. I don't care. I'll find a way of using it for me. And so one attribute of a good steward is that they are concerned for the needs of others. Illustrate the point, right? You walk down the high street, I walk down the high street, and there are people there with flyers, sometimes with flyers or posters or trying to raise money for cat-related charities. Now, some of you already know where this is going because you know that cats and I don't have the best relationship. And as a result, when I walk past these people, I look at a picture of a cat, and of course, I'm sure for some people, including many of you, it's a sort of very moving image. And I look at it and I just think, you know, if Satan was to take physical form, he would very much represent the domestic house cat. And I can't imagine why someone would not only allow that thing into their house, but employ that thing to roam around the house going into everyone else's houses as well. And I find myself so animated by annoyance at the existence of the house cat that I don't want to give any money to it, and I find myself very unconconcerned. Now, if you are a cat person, if, not even just a cat person, this is a divisive message, obviously. If you are, it occurred to me while I was at Lee, I was in mid-sentence, and I suddenly thought, there might be people here whose job is to raise money for cat charities, and so, and if, if that is true, I'm, I'm sorry, I appreciate your stewardship of what God's given to you, but it makes me unconcerned, I regret to say, as I walk past, I think, do you know, I'm not concerned by that, but there are other things that in the same hundred yards, somebody else might be trying to raise money for, and I become very concerned. They're trying to stop sex trafficking, or they're trying to address youth violence in the community, and suddenly you become very concerned, and you think, now, instead of thinking, oh, I don't know, who wants a piece of that? I'm going to use my money for this. Then you hear this, and you think, oh, actually, maybe I... Do you see, your concern massively shapes the extent to which you even think of yourself as a steward. Now, the challenge that some of us have is we're so overloaded with concern, we don't even know where to start. But there's probably many of us who that's not the problem. The problem is most, many of us actually react to almost every issue with the same attitude I react to the cat people, which is, oh, I just don't know, then after money again, I don't want that. Now, I don't mind doing that for the, I'm sure there's others who give to the cat people, but that's not me. But what I, what, if I was like that about everything, I would, that would not be a good thing, would it? Because it would show my actually lack of concern to serve other people with what God has given me, which in that case might be money. And so I think, okay, how am I going to use the resources I have? So I do that with my money, and money's a big part of it. I give hundreds and hundreds of pounds a month to local churches and actually some over and above the tithe to other organizations because I want to demonstrate, like, I want to, I want to use what God's given me, which is lots, to serve other people. And that's an important, because I'm con- there is a concern there. That's partly where it comes from. And so some of us here this morning, this may be what God's trying to say to you, is he wants to revive your concern. That's the phrase here. I'm so glad you've revived your... Con- you've always had a bit of concern, but you, it, it woke up. And God may be wanting to say that to some of us this morning. Good stewards are concerned. 
Also, good stewards are content. This is verse 11, right? Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. See, he's learned contentment. And if you are happy with what you have, then you will use what God has entrusted to you for the benefit of other people. But if you're not happy with what you have, you will always find a reason to use it for you, is my, I, I suspect. This is something I, I realized a few years ago when it wasn't about money. This is with our children, actually, where I realized that, um, that the gap in my life between what I thought I had and what I thought I deserved, that gap was gratitude. But if, on the other hand, what I thought I deserved was up here and what I thought I had was here, that gap was grumbling and actually turned into stinginess. And so, what you, so in other words, you, if you think you have a lot and you think you deserve a little, you'll be very generous and very thankful. If you think you deserve a lot and you think you have very little, you'll grumble and you'll be stingy. And what I found is that when you read Paul's letters with that insight in mind, you'll be struck by two things. One, he's always saying, I deserve so little. And two, he's always saying, and I have so much. So Paul's always talking about grace. He's saying, I was the chief of sinners. He's like 1,700 years beforehand saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I didn't deserve anything. I deserve nothing. But look at all these things I have in Christ. Look how he's blessed me with every spiritual blessing in Christ and predestined me and loved me and adopted me and redeemed me and given me the Spirit. So Paul is all the time saying things and teaching himself as well as others you have loads in Christ and you deserve very little. And that gap creates gratitude, which leads to generosity. So you see, your contentment will overflow almost naturally into generosity if you have genuinely learned it. But it's worth saying, Paul has to learn it. That's, what he, that's the word he uses, you know. In verse 11, I have learned to be content in any situation. It's not a gift you can suddenly get one day. Lord, I pray you'd give me the gift of contentment. Oh, there it is. Thanks, Lord. Now I'm content. But that's not like some things are, right? A lot of things are gifts, aren't they? So prophecy would be a gift and teaching would be a gift. Lots of gifts, but this isn't one of those. This is something you have to learn. This is something that circumstances, in his case, going through periods of plenty and then going through periods of hunger, abundance, and then need, those things have taught him contentment. So he's not continually going, How do I get more? He's going, Wow, look at all God's given me. And then going, now, what can I do with all this massive amount that I don't really need? And he's saying this, lest we forget, in prison. In the ancient world, when prison conditions were even substantially worse than they would be now. And so that, as you learn contentment, more and more of what you have, the bigger that gap gets, the more of your resources and your gifts become available for the blessing and service of others. And clearly, Paul's point here is about money, but it applies to many other things as well. Good stewards are content. Thirdly, good stewards are consistent. And this may be the hardest bit for some of us, I expect. But look at verse 15 onwards. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied. What's he doing? He's listing a number of different occasions when the Philippians have consistently given him money. Right? They gave to Paul when he first left Macedonia, and then they gave to him again, sent help for his needs once 
and again when he was in Macedonia. And now they've given him to him again in prison so that he's got more than he needs, well supplied. So that's at least four times in just that one sentence where they have consistently shown generosity to him because they have consistently been stewards rather than as one-offs. And if you're anything like me, one-offs are easier. Right? Why is, a one-off is easier because when I get emotionally moved by a need, I give then. And that's, again, that's true of money, but it's true of time too. I will find giving one day to something much easier than giving an hour every week to something or whatever. Do you like that? I mean, it's just sometimes you go the big one because then my emotions go and I think, yes, I want to give to that. And then, oh, now we're done. Whereas the challenge and often the most useful, fruitful sort of stewardship is actually week in, week out, month in, month out, commitment to things. And if you, like me, struggle with that in any form, whatever you're doing, here are two things that God has given us that he hadn't given to the Philippians that really make it easier. Standing orders, rotors. Oh, what wonderful gifts they are. Praise the Lord for standing orders and rotors. Now, you may not be able to access either of those, but for many of us, those will really help because what they do is they disconnect the commitment I'm making from the emotion I feel about it. So what happens is I make a decision. I'm going to give X a month to this, to this, and I do it for this church, right? So I'm going to give this a month to that church. And then it doesn't matter whether I particularly feel led to do that on a given Sunday because I've already effectively made that commitment. And so it's helped. similarly with rotors, you see, if I know I'm going to do that on week two or that every second or fourth week of whatever, it leads me to a place of ongoing, consistent, faithful stewardship even when I'm not particularly feeling it. And if you're like me, you may not feel it all the time. And I just found that's very, very helpful when trying to get habits into my life that are, and I think that's what the Philippians are doing. They're just time, you did then, and then now, and then again, and now I've got another one. That sort of consistent, faithful stewardship is incredibly powerful. And then finally, good stewards, yeah, we are consistent and we are content, and we are also confident. And this is where the joy kicks in for me. I love this. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Good stewards are confident of that reality. This is bold stuff. I can do anything through him who strengthens me. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. It's not like he might. It's not like I hope he could. It's like he's going to supply them all. And that confidence leads you to be very, very good stewards because you're aware that no matter how much you give out, God will always give you more. That's so liberating, right? Have you, have you ever been to an all-inclusive venue of some sort? I've never paid for a holiday there, but I've often gone, I say often, a few times gone to conferences in an all-inclusive venue. And I find them a bit weird because I'm quite English about it. So I sort of turn up and say, are you saying it's all free? All of these things? I can have any one of these things, this food, this drink. And I have to watch myself at that point going, well, I could just eat it because it's there. And so you end up becoming quite, oh, there's so much stuff. There's this abundance. And... What, what I found in those venues is that people always offer to get a round of drinks. So you're, you're there, and people go, anybody want a round? You think, do you know that doesn't count? Like, that hasn't offset the round I bought you at a five pounds each drink in London a few weeks ago, the fact that you're buying it here, because it doesn't cost you anything. And the reason why you feel that sense of abundance is because you know that no matter what you do, it won't run out. And when you know something won't run out, you're very lavish with it. You're very generous with it. On the other hand... Some of us have been in situations which are always socially awkward when you think you are going to be able to pay for a number of people's drinks and it turns out they're much, much more expensive than you thought. Right? So this happened to my friend Greg when he was about 20 or something. He's in New York. He orders a gin and tonic. And this is 20 years ago. And 
this is just the sort of, you know, when this was a lot of money and he was young anyway. And the guy comes over, gives him the gin and tonic and says, that's $10. He's so shocked that he very loudly goes, $10 in a loud, high English accent in an American bar and realizes, of course, everyone else there is really wealthy and they're just looking at him like this. And he goes, so reasonable, which I thought was a fantastic save. I thought, hats off, well done. But, and that's actually what he said in response. But the thing is, some of us have experienced what it's like to be in a moment when you think, I don't have anything like it. I didn't even think the whole round was going to cost that. And now my, I thought it was going to say two. And he said 10. Now what? And when you have that kind of scarcity mentality, you're not very generous at all. Because you're, you're going, oh, I'm not even going to be able to cover my own bill, let alone the one next door. And the reality is, you see, if you put those on a spectrum and then you look at the text of Philippians, you'd say that God is not the sort of, there's $10 for a G&T and now you've run out. God is an all-inclusive God, right? My God will supply every need of yours according to his abundant riches in Christ Jesus. That's not just a statement about money. And it's certainly not a statement that whatever you give, God will always give more money back. But it is a statement about the bounty and abundance of God. It's saying he never runs out. There's nothing you can go, I've used that gift there and now God's going, oh no, that was my last fiver. What now? God has always, always got more, whether it's money, time, energy, gifts, anything. And when you are confident in that reality, you find yourself able to be a really good steward because you're no longer thinking, am I going to run out? Instead, you're thinking, I can use anything God has given me, confident that he will always give me what I need. Discipleship is about stewardship. It's about using the gifts that God has entrusted to us in order to serve others and to glorify God. But that only works. And actually the whole Christian life only works because of that crucial word, gifts. It only works. Stewardship only works. Christianity only works if you know that you are stewards of gifts from God. You don't steward your resources out of moralism or self-improvement or a desire to gain favor with God. You steward your resources on the basis that you already have favor with God and you want to increase in your knowledge and enjoyment of that gift and you want others to increase in their knowledge and enjoyment of that gift. And because they do, you use everything you have to try and get there. So you, you, you get your chair out, you get your habits out, you get your stewardship, your money, your finances, your time, your energy. You go, I want to know Christ. I want that biscuit of knowledge of Jesus. And so I'm going to put these things in place not because somehow they're meritorious in them themselves, but because over there is something I desperately, desperately want. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share with him in his sufferings so I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And because Paul knows that, he signs off this letter with a statement that in some ways counts as the summary of the entire letter and the whole of Paul's theology. He signs off like this, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. That's not incidental. Paul begins this letter and he ends this letter with grace because he knows that ultimately, if you don't know that it's a gift, if you don't know that Christianity began before you were, your Christianity began before you were born because of grace, it's going to continue to millions and billions of years after you die because of grace and that every glimpse, every second, every breath in between then and then is also of grace. If you don't know that, you won't be able to steward anything for anybody. But when you do, you can take every step, every offering and every moment of your life both in receiving the grace of God and in thanking him and using what he's given you to help other people also join in enjoying it. Amen? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we thank you so much for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this book, this letter. It's so rich and beautiful for us. It helps us. Lord, we pray that you would help us both put 
Habits in place where we need to cultivate habits in our own lives that will help us increase in our understanding and joy in grace. But we also pray that we would continue to just live in freedom from feeling like any of these individual things is somehow the thing we must do to please you, but is instead a reaction to, a thanksgiving for the astonishing bounty of the grace you've already shown us in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.